Blog Talk Radio. Hi, welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, founder of Alzheimer Speaks Resource Website, Blog My mission today is to educate the world about Alzheimer's disease and memory loss. And that came about through my mother's 30-year journey with uh, with her memory loss. She's now in her end stage of for about three years. We're getting a little bit of feedback, and I'm not sure where that's coming from. Um, let's check with my guest here really quick. Um, and Mary Beth, um, do you guys have your, um, your episodes up and running? I don't know if you can hear feedback or not. Um, Another number. Is this better now? Yes. I'm not hearing it. Okay. Well, who knows what it is? Good old technology always <laughs> keeps us running here. I'm going to start out all over again. I'm Lori LeBay, your host of Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, and I'm very sorry for that uh, beginning there. Not quite sure what happened feedback wise there. I'm the founder of Alzheimer's Speaks Resource website, blog, and radio. And I'm just passionate about educating the world on Alzheimer's disease and memory loss. And that really came about through my mother's journey with um, with the disease. And she has been on this journey for 30 years, and she is now in her end stages of the disease, which she has been in for about three years. So our goal here on Alzheimer's Speaks is to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss and empower them to live purpose-filled lives and we want to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real everyday life stories of living with Alzheimer's disease. And that is why I am so thrilled to have our two guests today, um, Mary Beth Watson, and we also have Eileen Smith with us. And um, both of these women are on journeys with their husbands who um, also have memory loss. And so they're going to share with us today how it is different when you're caring for a spouse. Um, I can speak, you know, really well from a daughter's side, but there's just a whole different level um, of intimacy and, um, you know, the relationship, the length of time. Eileen is going to be talking um, with us today. Um, They just celebrated their 45th wedding anniversary. That's a long time um, to be in a solid relationship with somebody and how that shifts and changes. So um, it'll be really um, a very, very interesting show. Um, Rick Phelps, our channel expert on living with Alzheimer's, I don't think he's going to be able to make it today, but we'll just kind of play it by ear and and see what happens. 
Um, I never quite know what his schedule is going to be. If you have questions, as usual, you can go ahead and type them in, um, or you can call in, and um, we'll be glad to take your, your calls and your comments and questions live there. So to begin with, I'm just going to introduce Mary Beth Watson. Mary Beth uh, was educated as an electrical engineer, and she worked in information technology um, in the consulting services. Um, in her management capacity, she provided guidance to many employees and coworkers as they purchased homes and made investments and made decisions regarding insurance needs. And then in 2001, she decided that the best part of her job was really providing support, um, and she started her own business called Clockwise. Her husband, Dale, was an athlete and very well-respected horse trainer and polo player. And he was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's disease in February of 2007. So once um, he was diagnosed, um, Mary Beth decided to, to kind of suspend her work and to share Dale's good days. And I just loved, you know, the way she, she formed that. It, it's about the good days. Mary Beth says the diagnosis has changed her life um, in a very good way and that this experience, um, you know, she's learned to tap into support and other caregivers um, and advises people on long-term um, strategies. Our second guest is Eileen Smith. And Eileen was born in the UK and she immigrated to New Zealand in 72 with her husband Ray and her two children. Um, there she was in corporate financing um, since 1980, and she was a finance manager for S.C. Johnson in New Zealand, and she's done that for 17 years. Ray was diagnosed, um, her husband, with early onset in January of 2001. And at the time, he was an export manager, and both Ray and Eileen were 54 years old and looking forward to early retirement. Eileen ended up um, shortening her hours as race conditions worsened, and they both got really involved with lobbying um, for subsidizing medications because the the monthly amount of of cost is just is just such a burden okay. to families. Eileen then became the chair of her local Alzheimer's Association and then the chair of the national organization as well. And then Ray's um, illness ended up going downhill in about a four-month period, and he ended up having to be hospitalized or go to a hospital-level care, which in the U.S. here would be more of a nursing home type status, in May of 2006. And so at this point, I want to welcome both you ladies. Hi, Eileen, and hi, Mary Beth. Hi. How are you, how are you doing today? Today's a good day. Good, 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 good. Well, I'm so I'm so glad that you're both able to make it here, and I'm very excited um, for people to hear your stories and the depth of them because they just, I think, are going to touch um, the audience so deep in terms of, of what you both have to share and how much this disease has impacted not only your husband's lives, um, but your lives, your families, and, and all of your friends. So why don't we go ahead and get started. And um, to kick this off, I'm going to throw it to um, Mary Beth to, to begin. 
And Mary Beth, is there a little bit more that you would like to share, um, just kind of background information about yourself over and above kind of the bio that I gave people here? Um, I think that's a pretty good summary. Um, I think what you can't really read in a bio is that prior to this experience, uh, I had a career and my life was very much about my career, and I think my life centered around my work. Um, a, A quick story, one year, feeling particularly flush, I said to my husband that I I would give him anything he wanted for his birthday. What did he want? And I was thinking big screen TV, and without missing a beat, he said, just a little more of your time. And I thought, ouch, that's harder to do than to buy the big screen TV. (laughs) I need at least two weeks to to schedule that. So um, that's what you can't read in a bio. Wow. That that's very poignant. I mean, that, that, and I can't imagine that that doesn't kind of stab everybody in the heart because we've all done it to to people that we love, and not even knowing, just getting in the mix of life. How about you, Eileen? Is there anything else you would like to add for people to know about you as far as background? Um, well, I've got five grandchildren now, and um. That was that was one of the things that Ray really enjoyed was getting on the floor and playing with the grandchildren and um, it's that time of your life is so cut short when when Alzheimer's hits it's it's very difficult to um, to go when you're in your early fifties and you're planning for your retirement all of a sudden you go from planning ten years ahead to planning six months ahead and then three months ahead and then one month ahead and then all of a sudden you're going day to day. Wow. Now, Eileen, you had said you, you the two of you were both 54. I can't yep. even imagine getting that news because I'm 52. Um, but I can't even imagine what that must have been like. What What was it like for the two of you? At that moment, when you when you got the diagnosis, well, I, at the at the time, we were both in full time careers, very busy, and um, Ray did have a tendency to forget the odd word. And you know, when you've been with somebody as many years as we've been together, I'd sort of pick it up and fill in. Um, and um, in t- in two thousand. He forgot my birthday, and I know quite a few men probably forget their wives' birthdays, but Ray never, ever forgot mine. And uh, I thought, oh, maybe he's planning something special for dinner or whatever. So we went out for dinner, and um, he asked me, oh, is this for something special? So I said, well, it's my birthday. And he just looked at me, and he said, well, you better get used to this because I'm forgetting a lot of things these days. So I was horrified, and um, I convinced him to go and see the doctor, and that was a waste of time because he was told, well, it's just your age. So another couple of months passed, and meanwhile I was sort of doing a little bit of investigation on the Internet, as you do, and I thought, oh, my God, this is something a lot worse. Um, so he, I got him to go for a second opinion and, and the doctor realized there was something very wrong. 
and um, so we went to a neurologist. Now, the neurologist, I guess, did all the questions, and I can remember that day. It will never leave my memory. Um, sitting, watching Ray go through these tests, you know, the serial sevens and the drawer clock, and he was in tears, and I thought, what the hell is happening here? And um, the neurologist didn't really mention Alzheimer's. He just vaguely mentioned dementia. And at the end of the or the test, he said, uh, oh, well, here's a prescription. I can't do any more for you. Good luck and goodbye. So oh, my God. We left. We left, and um, I looked at the prescription, and it was for Exelon. And um, he'd given us a little book. And Ray said, well, what's wrong? What have I got? So I had to sit down and say to him, well, Ray, you've been given a prescription for a drug that's said to delay the progression of Alzheimer's. And I was just devastated. And Ray turned around to me and said, oh, well, at least they know what it is. That's good. You know, and that seems to be a common thing, that people, when they say they actually have the disease, there's just such a relief, even if if there isn't guidance, but just that there's a name to it because they feel like they're going crazy. But but as a spouse, I just, I can't even imagine delivering that news. And, and I mean, my head I'm sh- would just be spinning out of control. I, I just, I, I, I can't even imagine that. How about you, Mary Beth? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your story? Um, and, you know, and it, I, if you're comfortable sharing your ages when, when Dale was diagnosed. Um, I was 52. And Dale is 12 years older than I, so he would have been 64. Um, Dale was always an athlete and very, very fit, so he was um, younger than his years. Um, I I knew what was going on. We had actually gone through several years of what I would call really bad behavior. Um, He was angry, and he wanted to fight about things, and and he was just wearing me out. And, And one day it occurred to me, we had this conversation yesterday. You don't remember this conversation, do you? You don't remember the conversation. And I knew something was wrong. And about this time, his oldest brother was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's. And I put it together. I knew that's what it was. But it took me probably two years to get him to see a doctor. And I got him there by saying, well, there's medication now that will slow this down, and if that's what we're dealing with, wouldn't that be a good thing? Wouldn't you want to do that? Um, so finally, we we did see a neurologist. Um, I had some friends who gave us an excellent recommendation, so we we had a very positive experience. Um, he went through the mini mental exam as well as other tests, looking for B12 deficiency. Um, iron, or, or not iron, uh, but metal toxicity, other things that could cause memory loss. And what I remember most about the day, it was, we went through all the tests, and then they gave us a diagnosis before we left that day. What I remember most is the um, the doctor had put his hand on, on Dale's shoulder and said, good luck to you, and he shook my hand and he said, I'm so sorry. 
And I thought, how profound. Good luck to Dale, but he was sorry for me. And I I remember that uh, so uh, distinctly because I think that was probably putting us on the road. Um, But on the way home, we we made the decision to not do any medications. Um, and, And so without medications, we didn't need to go back to see doctors. So we proceeded as though we were well. We didn't proceed as though we were sick. I think if you see doctors regularly, you create or you support the feeling of of illness as opposed to the feeling of wellness. So we never had to see the neurologist again. He did ask the neurologist before we left, how do I live with this? And he gave us really good advice in that he said, um, do the things you enjoy doing. Uh, put yourself in an environment where you won't hurt others. But if you like driving motorbikes and you can do that without hurting somebody, go drive motorbikes. And so his message was, live your life out. And mm-hmm. I, I took that to heart, and we've we've been really uh, fortunate that we've been able to do that. Wow, that is very that's very interesting. And um, you know, I think most of the time people don't realize kind of that pendulum swing, like when the doctor said, you know, good luck to you and, you know, <laughs> I feel sorry for you type deal, um, that our mindsets are, are just so varied, and yet it's a journey together. And we've got to find that middle road for for both parties to, to move forward and, and, um, and go forth. I absolutely loved... Um, the pictures that both of you submitted that are that are on the home page because it just it shows the life and the and the vibrancy of both your husbands um, and over time of course that changes you know Eileen especially for you now with with your husband needing pretty much twenty four seven care sounds like he's very similar to to where my mother is at how do you how do you deal with that emotionally. And I mean, if you can take that first. Yes, sure. Um, It was horrific having to make the decision to put him into care. Um, He did go down very quickly. Um, And once we we put him initially into a home where we thought would keep his social abilities up, so keep him, I suppose, um, better for longer um, but that didn't work and six weeks later he went into the hospital level care um, and I did have a friend that had been in the same hospital and um, with Alzheimer's with early onset and had that was sort of it he died there so as soon as I knew I was putting Ray in here I thought this is it this is going to be the end of the road for us as a couple. And um, I suppose it's taken me about four years to come to terms with with that. I visited him every day to start with until my family said to me, Mum, you're making yourself ill. You're not looking after Dad any longer, but you're actually... um, using up all your emotional energy and your physical energy still. So I cut it back to twice a week. And it was at the stage where I was really not not 
knowing who I, I was anymore and he was getting very angry and very aggressive and um, just seeing him like that I would just drive home in, in tears. Um, so I gradually started, um, you know, I, if, I, if I got to the home and I could hear him shouting I would quite often I would turn around and go home and I would make sure I only visited when he was in a good space. Um, yeah, it's it's been a dreadful journey. I must say, over the last year, he's now much calmer, and um, I, I still go in, and I sit and talk to him, and I talk to him about all the um, things that's been happening with the family, if I've got a particularly difficult job to do at home, I'll um, sit and say, well, you know, what are you doing in here? You should be at home doing all this. And um, now, if he hears me talking to him, he'll laugh. And that's his only form of expression. Um, these days, he can't communicate anymore. So um, it's been, I must say, it's been a horrendous, five years since he went into care because of the state of his decline, the speed of it and the um, aggression and agitation that he was going through for part of that and then load on all the guilt that comes with a carer for having to do that. I suppose yeah. I lost myself in my, my work, you know. Did you ever have um, the discussion? I mean, of you know, I know with my mom there was there was talk, even, and my dad both, you know, where they really wanted us as a family to promise that they would never end up in a nursing home. And did Ray ever ask that of you? No, he didn't. But what he did say to me was that he he never wanted to get to that. Stage and would I please help him so that he didn't reach that stage? He was asking me basically to help him commit suicide. Oh, jeez, that it, it's just the the questions that come up. Um, Mary Beth, feel free to chime in here in terms of um, you know your relationship um, with Dale and. Um, you know, how how has it been for you in terms of seeing things decline and, and feeling the loss? I think part of what makes it different with a spouse is that I, I think of the marriage as a third entity. So there's myself and my self-interest, there's himself and his self-interest, and there's the marriage. And through a long marriage, you make a series of compromises that are part of forming that marriage. And I think the marriage dies. The, the relationship changes so much that your spouse is the person you come home and talk to at the end of the day. The spouse is the person you have a plan with, that you have a future with. That's so much that you take for granted. Um, and, you know, fix the garage door, walk the dogs, take the trash out, all that stuff you harp about is part of the roles and responsibilities of that marriage. And so over the course of time, very gradually, you take on, you the caregiver, take on all of those other tasks, 
But I also think that whatever was in the marriage that might not have been positive, I think over time, especially in our middle years, there's things that they do that drive us crazy. There's small resentments. There's little um, angry spots that are just part of any marriage. And then you, as that marriage dies, you realize that none of that was ever important. And you couldn't have known that in the moment you were living your life. But you really get down to the, the very basics and the most fundamental elements of a human relationship. You can't hold a grudge if you don't have a memory. You can't have an argument if you don't have a memory. All that goes away, and it really comes down to some, I I hate to be too philosophical, but some sort of transcending love, some sort of um, for whatever was good or bad in that third entity. It's gone now, and what we have left is this fundamental union that I committed to honor and it's um really sweet i mean it's sweet doesn't sound like the right word but it is something um real special and i never would have experienced that had i not made this journey had i not been forced to do this i never would have had that type of relationship with the man that i married wow that's a, a really nice way to put it. And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, gosh, it's kind of like getting divorced, too. I mean, I, the way you described it was, um, you know, my marriage. You know, things had just totally changed and the marriage just kind of disintegrated. And if if I would have known, if I would have known to even look at what I've built with my mother through her disease and the things that really aren't important that I thought were important, you know, maybe maybe that would have made things different there too. Um, but we don't know what we don't know. Um, but it sounds like you have really found some some gifts in this journey, uh, which I think is just such a such a blessing. Um, I know for myself. It has truly been a blessing and changed my life in so many ways that I just view things so differently because you get down to kind of that precious nugget of what is really important about life and in life and um, how you communicate with one another. How did, now, I, I mean, you have two kids. How did the kids handle this? How did you tell them and what was their response? Um, to the disease. Um, yeah, they actually they they were they were very good. Um, they found it difficult to cope with um, initially, and um, were sort of very much um, well. Are you sure? You know, have you done all the tests that you need to do? And um, it wasn't really until they were on their own with their father without, I guess, me being there to support him. And, as, you know, as a carer in, in early stage Alzheimer's, you, you cover up a lot for your partner um, and step in so that other people don't quite see what's happening. So once once my children were on their own with their father, they they did realize that there was something majorly, majorly wrong. Um, I just pick on that comment you made about getting divorced. I think as a carer, <clears throat> when you get um, 
you know, especially in the situation I'm in where my husband's in full-time care, you're sort of in a horrible limbo situation where you're not divorced and you're not widowed, uh, but you've still got somebody there that is very much part of your life and um, is somebody you, you love tremendously. Um, but I'm at the stage now, I think, where um, I'm not quite sure what's in the future. It's sort of a little bit of a chasm, you know, that I'm about to step into. Um, but yeah, going back to going back to my children, they were um, they're really good and very supportive. Um, and I found my two older grandchildren. Um, they realised that the granddad was was ill and um, found that a little bit difficult to cope with. So the granddaughter that was born in 2001, um, when Ray was diagnosed, she is the one that will still go and visit her granddad, and she has such a close bond with him. It's just brilliant to see. And my two youngest ones, really, has never known their, their granddad. So... Um, Yes, my my major support, I think, over all of this was was, was actually my mother. My mother's um, was a very strong woman, and um, she died last year. So, you know, that's that's been a big hole in my life too. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's it's a tough time. How about? Um, oh, go ahead, Mary Beth. Um, she was talking about her mother, and what I was thinking of is I know that we're talking today about a caregiver for spouse, but the other thing that I think is hugely significant in our journey is our age, that we are young going through this. We're not in our 70s and our 80s with a spouse. We're in our 50s. We're in the heart of our life. And I lost my mom to breast cancer in November 2009, and and mom too was the person that I went to. She was the cheerleader. She was the one who said, "Oh my goodness, you're handling this better than I could. I could. I'm so proud of you." Nobody could give me that but my mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about friends? Um, have they, uh, you know, are, are they still in your life in the same way, or have you seen them kind of fall away, as far as? you know, being supportive and, and just just the normal interactions that we have with our friends, maybe Mary Beth? Um, well, we had very separate lives, so we had separate social circles. And I would say that there are there were people involved in my husband's life who completely disappeared. And I was rather surprised by that. But I also think men form different relationships than women do, um, mm-hmm. relationships more around things and doing things and being active, uh, especially since they were all athletes, where women are more inclined to f- to form relationships that are more about sharing and words and conversation and letters and things like that. Um, but there has been one person in particular in his life who who is who just stood up and said, I'm here, what do you need? And if I'm in a bind or have to be someplace, I can call him and he'll be here. And this was a person I didn't know very well, and so I'm just amazed by that. 
um, the woman who was the, my maid of honor in my wedding, I had reconnected with her after not having communicated with her in some time. And within two weeks, I got a message from her that said, can we come down and visit you? And she's in um, Wisconsin. And I so appreciate those people that will come here and be with us and just live our ordinary days with us. I think when I'm on the other side of this, I will have a different set of friends. Mm-hmm. Now, in your in, you're in Texas, correct? So Wisconsin's a yes. hike for <laughs> someone to come yes. And, uh, you know, I think that's wonderful. Jacqueline just wrote in the chat box that um, they have a group called Caregivers in Transition, and that's a group who has lost or placed their loved ones in a facility, and they use the term living life as widows, even though they're not really widows. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how they feel, I mean, because there's that loss there, that, that grief. Um, she's also just noting that, you know, friends fall away. And, you know, some even think that the disease is contagious, and, you know, the, their group just kind of laughs about that. But I know I saw that with my my dad with brain cancer and my mom with Alzheimer's. People just don't know how to interact, so it's easier just to stay away. And those people who come into your life or stay through, you know, thick or thin, I mean, they're just so precious. And I think the bond is just so intimate and so um, miraculous, you know, when you've got that type of connection of of acceptance because our world is not an accepting world for the most part. And it it has some pretty big journeys for us to teach. Now, Mary Beth, do you have, do you and um, Dale have children? Uh, we do not have children. He has children, adult children, by a previous marriage. Um, okay. They are. They have not been involved. In fact, I didn't even communicate uh, to his family until November of last year. Um, okay. I had felt that it was his diagnosis and his business, and he didn't want them to know. And then it occurred to me, they need to know in case anyone has any unfinished business while he's still knows who they are and can communicate with them. Uh, so he, his family was informed last fall. Um, but he, they're not really um, involved, so I don't, I can't tell you what their response is because <laughs> there hasn't been well, one. Well, <laughs> in, in so many, I mean, with all our families, you know, they're all constructed differently, and, you know, some are very tight and some aren't, and some are real dysfunctional, and... <laughs> And some have been slow. You know, there there is no right or wrong. It's just we gotta we gotta deal with them because they're they are part of our life, and it's about making again the best decision for the person that we're caring for. Um, what have you two found um, in terms of ways to keep keep you balanced and healthy? Um, in this caregiving role, because I, you know that's one of the biggest struggles I think that people have out there is not losing themselves and their their whole identity becomes this carer or this caregiver, and you know really still being able to have balance. Or have you not found that for yourself? And Eileen, I'll let you start with that one. Um, yeah, I think. Going back to friends, yes, old friends do drop away, but, um, you know, you get involved with, or my involvement with the Alzheimer's Society 
I've made a lot of new friends through that and that's been very supportive. Um, work has kept me balanced. I've had a very supportive um, employer and I've been very grateful for that. Um, I think as well, I was just writing some notes last night and um, I think I started to compartmentalize my time, you know, work time, rate time, family time, and then I realized there was no me time. Um, even while I was working and Ray was at home, I sort of organized his day, you know, I'll get him to do some something in the garden or I joined him with a walking group. Um, and then when I got home, well, Ray wanted to go out for a drive or whatever. So um, I've, yeah, I, it's only really been in the last few years when I've actually felt that my health has been deteriorating through the, um, through the long-term stress of this that um, I've started to sort of get involved with other things. You know, I've started to learn to play golf and um, I, at one stage I joined a gym and I intend to do that now. I've just moved house. Um, so I do try and uh, set up my week to do things that give me pleasure too now. Um, because I, I got to the stage and um, I met some friends one day and we were, we, I think we were going to see a show which was very funny and I came out and I thought, I don't think I've laughed like that for a long while and it's things like that that bring you up short and say, well, I need to make big changes. So, yeah, supportive friends through Alzheimer's so they know what I'm going through. Uh, but also friends through there that we can go and do things together, you know, go out for dinner, um, go to a gallery, whatever, that sort of thing. Well, I think sometimes we forget that we need to be energized too <laughs> and that we have to, you know, I, I just what laughing, like you said, does to us and how that fills us with joy and just, I mean, it's almost like putting a new battery in you when you haven't... Um, when you haven't felt that joy or happiness and, and just freedom um, to not yeah. have to be watching over somebody. But you forget that until you're almost, I know for me, until I was forced out of my element. <laughs> and then it was, yeah. it was almost like someone slapping me in the face going, like you said, wow, it's been a long time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how, how about you, Mary Beth? Um, well, before I go on, you have a new comment from Jacqueline. Oh, let's see. Caregiver burnout. I have seen people go through that. She said ending up in the hospital and worrying about their loved ones, and that is so right. And many, many times we we actually see the caregivers, um, if, they're, if they don't get ill, actually pass away sometimes from the stress mm. and taking care. And so... It's something so important, yet it's just not talked about, that it is okay to still have a life and to have balance. Uh, I know for myself, I didn't I didn't have it when I was in the, the crux of it with my folks. And after my dad died, somebody asked me a really simple question, Lori, what do you like to do? 
And I honestly couldn't answer it. I hadn't done anything for myself for I could I couldn't even tell you how many years. And I had no idea because I never stopped to think, what is it that brings me joy? And it's such a simple question that we really have to take seriously in terms of of bringing balance, that's for sure. Um, Jacqueline's also noted that they started um, in their support group with a joke and just because laughter is the best medicine, which is, which is very true. In our memory cafe, um, JR's memory cafe that we brought over from the UK, we start with a what we call a, um, bummers and blessings. And we have people write down what, you know, in their life wasn't so good since we met last and then what was truly a gift. And we share those because typically we have both in our life and just to be able to acknowledge them. So, Mary Beth, for you, um, what have you done to find balance, or did you never lose balance, or did you never have balance to begin with? <laughs> I start out with, with where you were coming from and where you're at right now. How do you right know now. that about me? There, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, part of what made me good at my job was my ability to plan and organize, but also my ability to control. And so the, one of the lessons that I had to learn on this, in this last few years is that I control nothing and that I have to adapt. Um, I had a, a dog. We're dog people, and my husband was a phenomenal dog trainer uh, along with the horses. We had Border Collies and Australian Shepherds. And I wanted to have one more really good, well-trained Aussie while he was still capable of doing that. And I forced that to happen, bought a puppy, which he had no ability to train because he couldn't be consistent. And the dog died um, unexpectedly at at two years old. And I was just rattled by that. And it occurred to me that dogs don't plan. They just adapt. They adapt to the environment that they're in. And the, the more adaptive you are, the more successful you are. So I had to give up planning and become an adapter, which is a tough one for me. But then I found I would have days where I was restless and I felt trapped. Um, and when you're restless and trapped, you become resentful. And that wasn't going to be the right frame of mind for the job at hand. And so I started doing what I call second life planning. Um, Eileen will know that a lot of times I will comment, go second life. And I use a tool that's called mind mapping. Mind mapping is a tool that's often used for brainstorming sessions or group-type uh, events when you're trying to extract creativity and new ideas. So I use a technique called mind mapping, and I started creating what's my second life. And my second life is for when I'm no longer responsible for the day-to-day care of my husband. First thing this does is it makes you decide that it's okay for me to go on and it's okay for me to have plans for a second life. I think if you don't plan it, you can't be too unhappy about what you get. But I can plan that. And I started off with some really basic things like, where do I want to live? Um, how will I live? What will I drive? Who will my friends be? What clothes do I want to wear? What, what, you know, I started having these little components. And I mind mapped a second life. 
And the amazing thing that happens with that, and I would I would do it 15, 20 minutes before I go to bed. I'd open up my mind map, take a look at it, and say, do I really want to live there? Because I can do anything, so what is it I truly want to do? And I created this second life. And the amazing thing about doing that is I find myself moving that direction already. It satisfied my need to plan. It satisfied my need to feel that I had at least some control. Um, but... Once you have a second life, for instance, I know how I stand in that second life, so I know what physicality I need. So I didn't have to go on a diet to lose weight. I just did lose weight because I'm becoming that person for that second life. Um, It's been so, um, I want to say, invigorating, uplifting, moving for me Mm. to do that. So I think that's how I did it. I've designed a second life. Wow, so your your second life is really almost like intentions that some you know some people would say affirmations or intentions of what it is that you want in the future. I I think that's just fantastic. I mean, you can just hear the strength in your voice and the the comfort um, within, and it's it's very powerful. It's 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 very powerful to hear you talk about that because. You do, everybody does deserve to have a life, and we transition through our lives all the time. This is just a step that hasn't been identified as okay to transition through yet. No one's really come up with a term. No one's really given permission um, to do it or how do you do it. And again, I, I don't think there's a right or wrong way. It's it's so personal, and I think it's fantastic. I, I love, I love the term second life. I think that's that's mm-hmm. really neat. So, thank you for sharing that. It's, you know, it it made me think just with your comments and then Eileen's earlier about, you know, what do I do and how do I do it? And I I can't for the life of me think of the reporter's name, where she had Alzheimer's disease and her husband was a reporter. And he's he's written a book now and speaks on it. But he, you know, ended up having to place her into a community because he couldn't care for her anymore. And he now is has a girlfriend and is living together. And they go and visit his wife all the time. And it was really interesting reading, you know, seeing his video and and reading people's comments on, you know, is that right or wrong. And a lot of people were very supportive, but those who weren't were I mean, just downright nasty about judging him for moving on um, with his with his life. Yet she, his wife, is still very much a part of their life. He's just found a new a new partner in it. What are your What do you guys What do you think of of something like that? And I'm not saying that you would do that, but what are your thoughts on? you know, moving on with a re- with another relationship, you know, at some stage if you're married or, you know, some people even go through and get divorced um, during that just for financial reasons. Have, have you guys thought about that at all? And, Eileen, I'll throw that to you first. Um, yes, I've thought about it. And um, I must say I really miss, uh, you know, going out to dinner with somebody or um, just, 
you know, you're reading the newspaper and you see something and you you just want to make a comment to that person that's next to you. Say, oh, have you seen this? And you, you sort of go to do it and there's nobody there. So, yes, I've, I've thought how nice it would be to have somebody in, in my life. Um, I don't know if I'd want it to be so serious and in a way I would be terrified of getting into a, a relationship where I had to go through this again. Um, that would scare the hell out of me. But I do uh I do like having men friends, um that I can, you know, go out for dinner with or go to the movies with. But I'm I'm an only child, so I guess I do quite enjoy my own company. So, um, yeah, if it happens, it happens. I'm not making long-term plans and um, <laughs> I'm going out looking, let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, and, and I didn't mean to put either of you on the spot there either because that definitely wasn't in our little questionnaire that we had. So, um, but I just think it's 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 very interesting um, in terms of process. I I can totally relate, again, not from losing my spouse to this disease, but just being divorced, that, you know, I miss so much not having someone to snuggle with or someone to, like you said, throw that comment by or help you run to the store or, you know, say mm-hmm. a joke or go to a movie or out to dinner, just all those little things. But yet I, too, like my time <laughs> alone, and it is, it, it's hard to balance um, and, and figure out. And, again, I'm divorced, so, I mean, the line is drawn in the sand for me. But um, in your situations, it's just so much more complicated um, in terms of, in terms of probably the judgment from other people and how they will look at you and interpret that because, as humans, you know, we take all that stuff in and, you know, I, I've i learned for myself not to take that stuff so seriously anymore, but um, but it's still out there. How about you, Mary Beth? I think I am responsible for providing the, the best care um, that he needs at that time, and that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm the caregiver. Uh, like for right now, my presence is very important to his being calm and um, enjoying his day. But at some point, it, that won't matter anymore. And I think when it when the caregiver doesn't need to be me, he will have other caregivers. Um, and my second life starts. Um, but I I think that. Um, you know, most of the people that I know who, in this situation, who even consider divorce, are are economically being forced into that direction in order to qualify for Medicaid and to not be impoverished by the end of their journey. Um, I can't see myself doing that. I I guess I'm here for the duration. I can't see myself leaving him in someone's care, getting divorced, so that I could remarry. I don't know that that won't happen but it just doesn't feel right for me but i don't wouldn't but i wouldn't judge someone else in that position 
I think as mm-hmm. long as I can make sure that he's being provided the care that he needs at that particular stage in his life, it doesn't matter who provides that care, so long as it's provided well. Well, and I think that's just so healthy um, that you're at that spot where it is about who can deliver the best care because so many times we we make these promises of, you know, we would never do that to someone, you know, we would never have to place them. And, and you know, with my folks, I mean, that was that was always the statement, you know, that and that's what they wanted to hear. And and as kids, you know, we said, well, yeah, that wouldn't happen, but they were healthy when it happened. You know, we didn't know my dad was going to fall down the steps and not be able to care for himself at all. And that just totally turned the tables, you know, on his situation. We didn't know that my mother, who the plan was to always live with us once my dad passed from his brain cancer, um, would one day wake up in the morning and say, I want to live in the nursing home. And she wanted to live there um, not because, you know, it was a five-star hotel that she had heard rave reviews about, but that she wanted to be with my dad. And her comment was, we've been together 49 and a half years and I'm not leaving them now. Mm-hmm. And that was such a sane, clear, concise, heartfelt comment. It's like, you know, it is all about what's best for them. And, at, you know, at that point it wasn't best for my mom to be living with us, no matter how much we loved her, because she needed the connection with my dad at that point. And, you know, plus she was able to be around peers that no matter how hard we tried as a family, we're not peers, we're family. You know, we've got history, we've got dynamics. Um, You know, we were raising kids. I mean, the atmosphere, the schedule, the commitments on all the various levels didn't or wouldn't have allowed us to really um, make make her totally queen for the day and meet all of her needs. She had to still work into the mix no matter how hard we tried. And being able to realize that and accept that isn't always easy, I don't think, for anybody. But its I think it's got to help make you feel a little bit more sane once you get to that point and say, you know, nobody wants to be strapped to me 24-7, just like I don't want to be strapped to anybody else 24-7. So with that being said, do you, um, Mary Beth, are you able to get out on your own very often or, you know, are as far as work goes, as far as friends, um, can you give us a little insight into that portion of your life? Well, I'm very fortunate in that I purchased long-term care insurance for Dale and I around 2000, and so, and I, you know, I don't know how I would be functioning if I was looking at. Um, being impoverished by the time I finish this journey. I mean, part of why I can enjoy the exercise of creating a second life is that I'm anticipating having the resources to, to be creative in that second life. And if I if I did not have long-term care insurance, that wouldn't be the case because I'd be spending those resources. Um, I had um, I was able to leave uh, leave him for short 
time, for short duration, and I did some contract work off and on for some extra cash. And then figured out last at the end of last year that I was it was not safe to leave him and that he was becoming anxious when he was by himself. So I stopped leaving in November of last year and um, tried adult daycare, and it didn't work because he's very busy, very active, and they felt like they couldn't contain him. And the other part of that is that he didn't play dominoes or cards when he was well, so why would he play them now? He just wasn't interested in those types of activities. Um, He's not an old man, and he just couldn't fit in there. And so it was suggested to me that I try having someone in the house, and I uh, found an organization called Visiting Angels, which is actually a franchise, and there was one I was referred by a neighbor who had lost her husband to Alzheimer's, and she was very pleased with the service she'd received. I contacted them, and we started at the end of June, and I have someone Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 9 to 3, and that's um, it worked out better than I could have imagined. It, it worked out really well. And um, we've just introduced her as my helper, so he doesn't feel that he's being looked after. And um, she shows up and fixes him his... 9.30 egg sandwich and takes care of lunch and is the adult eye on, around the house while I leave. And it allowed me to reconnect with friends and reactivate my old professional network and start looking for other things to do. So, uh, and I and I, I have to say that when he was first diagnosed, we were driving home and I wiped a tear out of my eye so quickly so he couldn't see me do it. And we went on from there. And the next time I cried was the first time I left him in daycare. No, actually, the first, the next time I cried was when the first time he got lost. And then the next time was the first time he went into daycare. There's these, like, landmark things that say, this is, a, this is real, this is really happening. And when I left him in daycare for the first time, I didn't have anything planned because I didn't know if they were going to call and say, this isn't going to work, come get him. And I drove around. I, I drove around for four hours just sick to my stomach and sad, so sad. Um, But then now that I have care in the home, I leave regularly, it's made my ability to refresh and recharge myself and come back. Um, I don't know know how I would have gone forward without it. Wow. Now, that's interesting. You had made the comment about, um, you know, when he got lost, which is a very common a common deal that happens. You know, people wander. We were lucky with my mom. She really wasn't a wanderer, but I do remember the time she was supposed to babysit my brother's kids and never showed up because she went to the wrong city and then couldn't figure out how to get back home. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the loss situation and how that felt? And I mean, apparently it was (laughs) overwhelming that it was one of your crying things. And rightfully so, but can you just tell us a little bit about that? And well, he was uh, he was still driving at the time, and we had a farm that we live on, and another farm that uh, that's about thirty miles away. And he was up at the at the farm, and uh, I would keep track of him by phone and say when we would be home. And and I'm working away, kind of enjoying the time by myself, and I realized he probably should be home, so. I called him on the cell phone, and he said, well, there was some construction work and a detour, and uh, and I got on the wrong road, but I'll be there soon. I can see the water towers in town. I'll be there in a few minutes. Fifteen minutes passes, and I call, and, and well, the funny thing is, is I'm sitting at my desk at the computer, 
And then I start asking him, well, what do you see? Well, I'm coming up on a creek. Well, what's the creek name? And he gives me the creek name. And I'm on Google Maps like a fiend. And I find that he's about three hours from the house in, a, in another state heading further away from home, heading west. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I can't even imagine so, that one. So I say, um, okay, well, you need to turn around, okay? So so you go to the first place you can turn around safely, you need to turn around, okay? And then when you get, you're going to come back to a major highway, and when you get there, I need you to go south. Okay, okay, well, I don't want to drive and be on the phone, and I don't want this phone to run out of battery, right? And so I said, um, okay, well, call me back when you get to the highway. So we hang up the phone. Of course he doesn't call back. I call him back, we do the landmark check again, and he's still heading west. So then, and this started at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, so then I started calling sheriff's departments. Here's the vehicle, here's the license plates, can you stop him? And they would say, well, if the last time you talked to him was at this time, you, he's probably in the, and he was going that direction, he's probably in this county, call that sheriff. <laughs> so oh, my. About a, so at about 11 o'clock at night... They stopped him uh, out near Abilene, Texas, long way from home. They stopped him because he was driving 75 and a 50. Um, they thought he was drunk because he was talking senselessly. He hadn't eaten or had anything to drink since noon. And they took his license and went back and radioed it in, and the dispatcher said, well, his wife is looking for him. <laughs> oh. So, God love him. They took him. They um uh, they took him to a, the nearest town, um, put him in a hotel room, gave his keys to the clerk, and told me where he was. So it was about 11.30 at night, and I uh, took off heading west. I, I, it took me about, I don't know, three hours to go get him. And that was the second time I cried, just the exhaustion. I had been trying to find him since 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I could still talk to him, so I knew he was safe, but I couldn't turn him around. And, uh, oh, I was so tired. I got there... Um, I don't know, two two thirty in the morning I got there and he was wide awake and wired and and just freaked out. I don't think he slept at all. And then the next morning about six o'clock, um I drove back and he followed me. He drove his car and, and followed me and we got we got home. Oh my gosh. Oh my go- I just I can't even imagine the terror and of, of doing that. I, I you know, I had a, a situation where my dad, you know, with his brain cancer, was driving. He he thought he was had an appointment, and he didn't have an appointment. And he had a white car, and it's the middle of a snowstorm. And he's driving himself into town, and there's two ways in. And a blizzard is coming, and my mom's oblivious. You know, she's like, oh, Dad threw up in the blood in the toilet, and he's bringing himself into the doctor, and she's sitting down having a donut and coffee like life is and I'm trying to figure out how to track him down and how to get a hold of him because I know things aren't good. And that's just, you know, they're two hours away from me, but it was a 20-minute drive that I was dealing with with him going into town and and getting a hold of the sheriffs. And, you know, we ended up getting things tightened down pretty quickly. You know, he went into the doctor, and then the doctor said, no, your appointment's not till tomorrow, and they sent him home. <laughs> you know, even though we had called, they still sent him home, and, and I ended up having neighbors come and get them. But that was just a horrible situation, but it was much shorter time frame. I wasn't worried he was going out of state. And, 
and stuff. How about you, Eileen? Did have you had any situations with Ray where he got lost or disoriented? Uh, yes, mostly um, you know just locally though in in shopping centres where maybe I've just turned my head for one second and he's walked in the opposite direction. So nothing on the scale of of Mary Beth. We did have a, a situation where. Um, he he got rather agitated at one time, and I said, oh, "Well, just sit in the car while I I do this." But um, when I got back to the car, he decided to go out and and walk, and I had no idea which way he'd walked. Um, so I I drove around looking for him for a while. I finally called the Alzheimer's office, which was about probably 15 minutes walk away and um, thinking he might go there because he knew all the staff. And the girls there all got in their cars and um, we sort of did a, a circle of the, the area and finally found him. He, he said he had no idea where he was going. Um, Ray did used to love walking and that was one of the things he, he did. And generally, he... He was pretty good locally. He did have one situation where he went through for a walk through a um, a large, um, what we call a, a bush park. You know, lots of trees and things, and it went down to the to the water's edge and um, got himself in the bush. And he he said afterwards that he he'd gone round the circuit about three times before he actually found the path to come out, but. Um, Nothing where he was really in danger or anything like that. No. Yeah, it's you know it's just such a strange disease because you you never know what to expect or what could happen next. I mean, it, it's not mm. anything that's predictable. And I know I remember getting um, the notice from the doctor mailed out um, when she finally went in for testing which was, you know, we tried to get her tested 15 years earlier and the doctor just did the 10 questions and she had a good day and then it wasn't approachable. But I'll never mm-hmm. forget getting the letter in the mail saying, you know, she's got the mentality of a three-year-old, don't let her out of your sight. Don't, she's not, she shouldn't even go walk to the mailbox alone. And we as a family are thinking, oh, my God, what do we do? They They live up at the lake at the end of a peninsula <laughs> with water surrounding them, you know. It was just like, and then we decided as a family that we weren't going to panic um, and go nuts. You know, we got the ID bracelets and things, but mom wasn't one to wander. And not that that couldn't change, and they told us, you know, that it could change, at, you know, at a drop of a hat. But we couldn't, we just thought we couldn't in. Um, institute certain rules because a she's not going to understand them and they're just going to frustrate her and so we just kind of sat back and really just you know decided not to really leave her alone very much but to be able to give her her space so that she could still feel purposeful and in control you know of her own life but it's it's a really fine line Um, and especially Mm. when they're driving and we lucked out with mom. She she just kind of decided to stop driving. You know, it ended up being she didn't really like driving so much at night, and then she started pulling back socially, 
and so it turned into more of a uh, a real natural um decision on her part not to mm. drive. How about you that too, to um, right. with driving? Um uh, Mary Beth, how did that work with with Dale or is he still driving? I <laughs> where were you at? Well, that was a, a a terrible challenge because that was where I had to remind myself that you can't make rules because I can't remember rules. And I was gone I, and I had a contract job to do and I had just shown up at the client site and I got a call and he wanted to know where the checkbook was. And I, I said, what do you need the checkbook for? And he said, to pay the locksmith. Why did you have to pay a locksmith? And he said, I had keys made for the truck because I'm just tired of looking for them. Oh, man. <laughs> I couldn't win. I couldn't hide keys. So I said, okay, I'll, you know, you pay the locksmith, and then I'm going to call you back, and we need to talk. And I said, where do you need to go? And he said, I don't need to go anywhere. And I just got tired of looking for the keys. So that was just just terribly difficult and then I realized that when I was leaving is when he was leaving and I think because he was anxious and didn't want to be home by himself and when I stopped leaving then he didn't seem like he had any need to drive and I would say well I'm your driver anywhere you want to go I'll take you and so finally um, <laughs> we went out uh, the the truck his little truck had sat in the garage for so long it wouldn't start and I went out and put a jumper on it and went to start it and I had blue smoke coming out from underneath the hood and <laughs> it allowed me to say, Well it's broke now <laughs> can't drive it anymore. It's broke. And then um I have some wonderful friends who are helping me. People that I didn't know were friends, back to that conversation. I found some local people who are helping me keep tractors and farm equipment operational long enough for me to sell it. And I asked them if they would come over and take the truck. And I was going to have it taken when we weren't home. And then I decided that that's just more confusing. That would be too upsetting. So while he was here, I had them come and take it. And I said, they're going to tow it out of here, and then they're going to see if they can fix it. And they'll let me know, and we'll figure out if we if it's worth fixing or not. And he said, okay. They pulled it out of the towed it out of the garage, and he swept out the floor and went to the house and never mentioned it again. Wow. So that was the end wow. of the truck and the driving. How about how about you, Eileen? Did you, was driving an issue at all with Ray? Um, no, he, and it's funny. We were involved in motorsport for, for quite some time, and um, he, he loved to drive, uh, but I did notice that... Um, he was struggling to stay in in the lane. Um, so what was suggested to to me was that um, he only drives. In fact, I, we only ended up with one car. So if I was out at work, I had the car with me, which was good. But in the afternoons, we'd perhaps, I'd perhaps drive out somewhere fairly quiet and say, "Oh, do you want to drive?" So I was actually monitoring it. Um, at the time and one day he we'd actually gone over to Australia for a holiday and um, he pulled he stopped the car and um, he got out and I said what's wrong and he said I don't want to drive anymore he said there's a, a car coming towards me and I can't tell where on earth it is on the road so that was it he, he made the decision to 
stop and never drove again. So I was really lucky. Yeah, that's that's nice. It's a it's a tough it's a tough tough deal. You know how do you how do you work with that in a respectful fashion if they're fighting back and really want to drive? I mean, some people I've heard have yes. taken the batteries out or disconnected cables, but depending on how car savvy they are, sometimes they know how to reconnect that stuff. <laughs> and um, with my dad, you know, with his, he had the brain cancer, he didn't have you know, official dementia, but he was having some issues with his memory and and being able to recall. I, I finally, you know, talked him into just letting me drive and I gave him his car keys um, minus the key to the ignition. So he had the clicker. And so we would walk out to the car and he'd be click, 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 and, and you would hear the buttons, you know, open and shut, open and shut, you know, unlock and <laughs> stuff. And, Half the time I'd pull out of the garage and the trunk would be open, you know, because he clicked it open, and I'd have to get up and, and shut it. But he he felt comfortable and in control because he felt he had a set of keys, you know, for the car, even though he couldn't yeah. go drive realistically. And that's really all it took, um, you know, with that situation. But it's it's scary. It's it's a uh, it's hard because you don't want them to get hurt and you sure as heck don't want them harming anybody else either. Um, what I found with my mom, and I think it must have been like with Ray too, was she, uh, you know, she knew um, she wasn't um, able to judge things as good as she used to mm. and it was really stressful for her. And so it was just easier not to do that. Once she knew that it was okay to give it up and no one was, it wasn't going to matter to any of us, you know, if she didn't drive anymore, um, it was it was okay for her and I think comfortable just to let it slide away. But a lot of people don't get to that point. And, um, you know, many go through the, the testing and ha- try to get the doctors to get them to pull the keys back and, uh, you know, and I, and I can't again. I can't imagine that because I mean, I go nuts if I take my car in for fifteen minute oil change. You know, <laughs> I like my wheels. <laughs> you know, and so sometimes I have to remind myself of this. You know, yes, it's logical and yes, it makes sense. But how would you feel, Lori, if the roles were revu- were were reversed? Because mm-hmm. it's it's just an ingrained thing in you that you've done for so many years, those patterns that we have, if it's reading the newspaper or having a cup of coffee at a certain time or driving your car, it's it's those things that are just, they're like automatic within us, um, I think are the hardest things to to change and to, to justify. And any tips for... For families um, struggling um, with maybe some behaviors out there, or maybe you want to share um, difficult behaviors that you've dealt with and, and maybe how you've dealt with them. Um, Mary Beth, um, do you have any anything that stands well, out Eileen for you? Well, Eileen, Eileen is my go-to person. Um, we <laughs> we have a, a small group on. Facebook called Memory Keepers, and it is uh, spouse caregivers, uh, caregivers for spouses with any form of dementia. And um, I found Eileen early on through an, another group, and she 
far enough ahead of me in the process, which is what makes it work so great, uh, because I can say, this is what I'm experiencing, and she's so quick to say, I had that experience, did you try this, did you try that? The other thing about uh, being in a group like that is I can get a better sense for what's ahead. Um, I didn't want to read the books because all the things that might possibly happen might not happen, and I didn't want to be consumed with that. So I had this just-in-time resource. I just go to the group and say, can you help me with this? And like I said, Eileen has been uh, probably the my, my biggest... Um, you've, you've meant more to me than I can tell you, Eileen, so I'll tell you that right now. Oh, thank you so much. Um, actually, Mary Beth, when you said, uh, you know, don't read the books, I I agree with you. There's nothing that is more depressing than uh, seeing, seeing what's ahead. And it was something that somebody told me really early on, just learn what you need when you need it. Don't don't look too far ahead. And um I mean we've had some some difficult behaviours and um I I don't know, it's it's I can't really give people advice on how to handle them, but I know when somebody says to me, Oh, this is happening something in my brain switches and said, oh, well, yes, try that. I remember we did that with Ray. Um, but I I found it was the, the anger and the agitation that was most difficult. And, um, you know, it comes back to distracting them uh, one way or another. Um, the, the, the instinct with somebody is if they're arguing with you is to try and make them see your side of the story and it just doesn't work with people with Alzheimer's um, so yeah just try and distract um, it's just no point in um, losing your temper just think practically how can I deal with this at this point in time um, Ray's spatial ability was really really uh, one of the bad things because we'd go and have a coffee and he couldn't work out to sit down on a chair. So um, one of the easiest things to do was, okay, we'll go and find a coffee shop where they've got bench seats. So that was that solved that little problem. Um, yeah, I've had lots of things uh I mean, I suppose when when we got into the incontinence side was one of the most difficult, um, and that was really the, one of the first signs where he was starting to go down fast. Um, yeah, I don't know, Mary Beth. What <laughs> what have I helped you with? <laughs> um. Actually, so many things. Um, we did some traveling in February, and we, when we came back home, we had a, a month with no sleep because of um, anxiety and um, just it was just a terrible time. And it's it's made me afraid to travel because um, I don't want to create that situation again. But you know, the thing is, is that I, and I think maybe you know we're talking about spouses, but like I said earlier, I think maybe the biggest impact is that we are young when we are dealing with this. And because we're younger, we are younger than, say, my parents who are now, you know, my dad's in his 80s. I go out to 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm not sleeping, I go to Facebook and see who's up. (laughs) 
<laughs> who can help me because I'm having a really bad night. And, um, you know, I'm living in Texas and I'm not living near any family. And people say, I can't believe you're doing this without family. And I don't, I've, I've never felt disconnected or unsupported. And that's largely because of, you know, a group of people who are on the same road I'm at. And so you, so you help in just so many ways. And it also helps very much that you're in a completely different time zone because when I'm not sleeping, you're awake. <laughs> well, and isn't that interesting, this whole social network? I have just found it so fascinating. I mean, because that's how, you know, I met both of you um, was through the social network and through um, Memory People. And, and then, you know, Mary Beth, you started Memory Keepers, which is just such a nice, intimate group of spouses it's it's just because the conversations really are very different than what occur in a lot of the other um, social network mediums and the bond i think that is created and the understanding um just you know you've allowed me to be part of that group even though i'm i'm not um i, I don't have a spouse in there and i really appreciate that but but the the depth and the conversations and the bonds are um, are just spectacular. Now, how can can you explain to people how they could become part of your group, Mary Beth? I think you can find the group on uh, Facebook by typing in Memory Keepers, and then um, and if you click on Groups, I think we come up near the top, and you can send a request to join. And it's a closed group, I think, which is why it is, uh, like you said, it's an intimate group. Being closed, the information, is uh, the, the posts are only shared within the group. Um, all of us have families, and sometimes when we're having a really bad time, we don't necessarily want our families to know, um, or we don't want them upset or concerned with our well-being. So I have, a, you can just find the group, and or you, you can send a, a request to me, and I'll um, put you in the group. The only requirement we have is that you be uh, a, a spouse or partner to a person with with any form of dementia. Yeah, and I think that's great. So it would be in the search bar. They would just type in Memory Keepers or or your name, Mary Beth Watson, and um, try to friend you on that um, to get into the group. And like you said, the, I think the confidentiality being the cro- the closed group is so important because you know, people within that group, I mean, they understand and they respect the need for the confidentiality and the need for support and the the giving and and um, in receiving is just it's so nice to see and with the social media is then so powerful to connect with people all over the world. I have learned so much of what's going on over in the UK and in other areas that I never would have known before, people that I have never would have met like Eileen um, before social media. So I just I just think it's such a wonderful tool. And, you know, I mm-hmm. highly encourage people to, to join that and be part of that And um, because I really think groups like Memory Keeper and Memory People and, you know, there's lots of them out there are really helping people in the trenches with this disease um, give them spirit and hope and life in terms of living with it because there are peers out there. Even though they might not be your neighbors next door, um, they don't need to be. 
and it's just about connecting the dots and having the the open communication and and the resources that are shared are just spectacular too. I find it very very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I have um, another question for you um, both, and this one is one that. People ask me all the time. It's usually the first question out of people's mouths after I speak when they come up and talk to me a lot of times. And that question is, you know, do they still know you're their you're their spouse in your in your situation? You know, do Dale and Ray know that they're married and who you are? Eileen, I'll let you speak to that first. Okay, um, sometimes I think Ray knows me. He's, um, but I think most of the time when I'm there, it's just somebody that's paying attention to him. Um, so I don't think he, you know, how can I put it? Sometimes I think he knows he knows me and sometimes he doesn't. Um, sometimes he responds to the the carers at the um, hospital exactly the same way he responds to me. Um, certainly um, there's no no affection coming from him, if you know what I mean. It's just a... Um, you know, one of the best things I can do is sit there and get him to laugh because Ray has got a beautiful laugh that lights up his eyes and but anybody can sit there and do that it doesn't necessarily have to be me um, however last year when when mum died and I went in because mum was in another part of the hospital I went down and I actually sat and told him that mum had died and he actually took a hold of my hand and just sat there quietly and wouldn't let it go. And I think at some deep point in his brain, he actually understood and knew that I just needed that um, that connection. It's amazing. My mom has done that. She's in her end stages, and you know she doesn't. She doesn't walk. She can't feed herself. You know, she's totally incontinent. I mean, she needs all her daily cares done. But there are moments where she just pulls it out. And, you know, one time, I mean, we thought we were losing her. And, you know, she was sleeping in her chair. And I'm going over all the paperwork, you know, the prepaid burials, all the do not resuscitate, the the autopsy stuff, all, all of it. And she's just sleeping there, and the nurse leaves the room, and I grab my mom's hand, and I got tears in my eyes, and I just said, "Mom, did I do that right? Is that what? Is that still what you wanted for your plan? You know, is that right?" And it was just because it was so difficult, even though I knew we had zillions of conversations on this stuff, and I knew what she wanted. It was still very, very hard. And, you know, out of this dead sleep, I mean, she she didn't recognize me when I walked in, when I touched her, when I talked, none of that. And when I held her hand and I asked her that question, did I do what you wanted me to do? Did I do it right? 
She turns her head. She looks directly at me, opens up her eyes, looks at me square in the eye and goes, yep. And then she went back to sleep. <laughs> you know, and it was like, yeah. I am such a firm believer that even though they can't communicate what they know, they're still taking it all in. You know, it's, yeah. it's just just amazing. Mm. How about you, Mary Beth? How How is Dale with you at this point? Do you think he knows who you are? Does he respond to a name or able to say a name for you even? He's um, he's surprisingly well. Um, you know how, you know what I mean when I will say a person with Alzheimer's will get that look in their eye? It's a blankness. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. ne- I've never experienced that with him. You know, I still have a sense of humor. You know how in your marital relationship you'll you'll develop your own off-color brand of humor that the two of you share. Um and we still have that. Um, he can still make a joke. Um, so, you know, he does, he knows we're together. I don't know that he, he understands how that happened or where we were when we got together. The details are gone, but he seems to understand we're together. Um, one time he said to me, uh, what's your dad going to say when he finds out you're going to stay here in Texas with me? And I said, well, we've got a license, so there's nothing he can say. And we had a good laugh about that. But I thought that was kind of an odd question. What's your dad going to say? Holy cow. Um, so that was pretty funny. Uh, so that's, that's funny. And and then, um, you know, others, uh, he's, still, he's still interested in sex. <laughs> I was telling someone, uh, we were having a joke one time on memory people, that he started hoarding and he wanted to hoard cigarettes and condoms and I said what are you doing with all those condoms and he said well a guy's got to be prepared <laughs> I don't know where he thought he was going or what he thought he was going to do but I was going to make sure he stayed home <laughs> so you know we we have our moments um, but uh, yeah I've been very fortunate I mean he's just very, a very simple person right now you know can't can't follow directions and you know you can say sit down and have dinner and he'll turn around and walk out the door and you walk out the door behind him and say would you like to have dinner and you bring him back in and sit him down and have dinner you know he's so um so disconnected that you're surprised that other parts are still connected you know that he still has humor and still has his expression and still knows me and um, so you know he's just done really well oh that's great that's great. I I uh I know with the the whole relationship thing. I think again for me on my journey which is, is very different from anybody else's is you know I just have uh, a much more intimate relationship with my mom and we were always really close, but it's just it's at a level I can't even describe to people anymore. You know, when I when I sit with her um yeah, you know, if I touch her, it's just it, it's 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 given me this calmness and um, this feeling of acceptance that I, I've never felt in my life before. I um, think that goes back to something we talked about earlier, though, when we used the word transcendence. I think all of the trappings and the wrappings of life that don't matter, which is almost everything, go away. Uh-huh. And you're left yeah. with 
with the heart of something that is is a heart to heart, a soul to soul. Mhm. Yeah, and it's it's just so rich and it's you know, for me, it's like I want to be able to get everybody to be there and to get past the anger and the frustration and not that that doesn't creep up and you know, have that from time to time, but to really focus that you can have this with this person. Um, you know, I just did a video called, um, it was two experiences I had called, uh, what was it, a shell of a body or a shell of a soul. Because I get really frustrated, and I, and I even say this in my when I speak about the shell of a body, because that's what people refer to them as. And I, and, but this video is all talking about the difference between being stuck in a shell and really in the shell of the soul because the soul still exists where the the body might not be able to do what it once was able to do. But the soul is still just as vibrant and alive. Um, It's just encased differently. You know, or that's my perception of it. Mm. Um, That they do, do have those moments that they... You know, they can pull out even in the very end stages, you know, when all you're getting is that blank stare and, you know, you can stand next to them, you can touch them, you can talk to them, and there's just no recognition that you're even there. And then all of a sudden, poof, you know, they'll they'll say your name. My mom, my mom didn't say my name for like three years one time. And then I said a joke and she giggled and stated my name, and I just started bawling because you know you miss those little things, like a like a hug or a name or whatever it might be, you know, in your life, and you realize how precious those things those things really are. And so now I I look for those things um, so that I don't miss them when they do happen. But that's my goal, anyways with that um do you have um any comments in terms of what this caregiving role has has taught you as a whole and mary beth maybe if you can take that first um that is just that's just too big i think you know the only thing i can say is the that who i am now is so different than who i was three or four years ago, that I can't hardly see the connection between myself and that person. And provided an opportunity to go back to being that person, I would not choose to. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can I can totally relate to that. I can totally, totally relate to that. How about you, Eileen? Yeah, yeah, I feel the same. It's, it's opened up my life actually in a, in a lot of different ways and um it, it's made me realize that um you know what's important and you, you touched on it earlier Laurie, with um you know that that aspect of sitting with somebody um in you know in later stages and still feeling that connection you're never really quite sure it's there but the times, the times when it is there are just precious. Um, so yeah, it, it teaches you a hell of a lot, and um, it's yeah, it's opened up a well, it, it has done over the last ten years 
opened up a whole new world to me as far as um, speaking. You know, I've spoken to the TV, to Parliament, to to all sorts of things, and um, I would never have thought I would do do that. And um, yeah, it's just changed my life too. You know, I I have to you know just say I I am just thrilled to know both of you, and I I haven't met either of you physically, but you both really touched my soul and my heart, and and in what all you're doing and the journeys that you're on and the difference that you're making. Um, you know, you're not staying silent about this disease and just being being able and being willing to share what it's really like to to love somebody and and you know be married to somebody who has this disease and how it affects you know both of you um in your your lives and your dreams and in the day to day you know just being is um i just can't thank you enough for being part of the show for both of you it's it's just been very fun to um to listen um to your words of wisdom and the process that you've been through. And um, is there anything that you would like to share with a person who is a spouse of someone with with Alzheimer's disease or dementia? Um, any w- last words of, of wisdom? Mary Beth? I would say go to your heart and trust yourself. Ooh, I like that. How about you, Amy? Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Listen, listen to your heart. Listen to your instinct, and don't be afraid to talk to people about it, um, because there's a whole world of support out there now, and. Um, the more, the, you know, as awareness picks up, um, everybody knows somebody that this disease has touched. So never feel you're alone. Yeah, it is amazing when you ask the question. Um, I do that when I speak. Um, a lot of times I'll ask the group. And, you know, a lot of times it, it can be a very mixed group. And it's rare when I don't get at least 95% of the people that either know somebody in their family or a friend um, that is struggling with this disease. And it affects yeah. all of us in in massive yeah. ways. And so we really have to be much more conscious. I would I would love to see more education even in you know, the school system in terms of this disease um, so that because a lot of our kids, you know, our grandkids that are in the mix of all this too, and I think sometimes they get left out in terms of, uh, I see that when I go into the schools anyway, where maybe there's a grandparent living with them and they just feel like, the kids tell me they feel like they kind of got plucked down a notch. Um, because they're left out, and not that they don't want the person living there and not that they don't love and care for them, but that they're not always included or told what's going on. And yeah. and I think and I think the kids, 
Well, you had mentioned one of the grandchildren has such a special relationship with Ray, mm-hmm. and and that's powerful. And you know, we need to oh, use yeah. that to to yeah. the advantage. Um, yeah. Because it's it's huge. It's huge, and they they want to be included, um, and they know how to play so much better than we do as adults, which allows, I think, the freedom for the person with dementia to be who they are and not be judged because the kids, especially little kids, they haven't learned to judge yet. Yeah, Um, yeah. There's no expectation. mm Mm-hmm. Now, have you guys done anything kind of with the arts, with music or, or the arts at all? With with your hubbies, um, there's just been so much that's been coming out about the power of music and the the power of creative arts. Um, have any of you dabbled not, with with either of those? Um, not so Mary much. Gus, uh, oh, sorry. Oh no, go ahead, go ahead, Eileen. That's fine. Okay. Um, music. Ray loves shows, so. Um, we got a heap of DVDs and um, show music, um, which he loved listening to, um, but not not art. Um, okay, we tried. Uh, we tried. I tried music. I bought a little um, MP3 player with a headset. When we were having trouble sleeping, I tried to get music to distract him, to put him to sleep. When we first got it, he enjoyed it and liked listening to it, uh, and that lasted about two weeks, and then he had no interest in it at all. He's very a very, very busy guy, um, so that hasn't worked. But I am starting to sing to him and with him, and I sing badly, so it's really humorous. And um, this summer when it was so hot, I can't keep him indoors. He's insistent on being outside and moving. So during the heat of the afternoon, say 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, some days I would just put him in the car and say, let's go run errands, and I would just drive away for an hour and then turn around and drive back for an hour. And that way I knew him. I had him out of the heat of the day. And we're driving down the road. We would sing, try to remember silly songs that we sang as kids. And and some some songs he remembers the verses too, and some I remember the verses too. But um, so we've we've done that, and it kind of reaches way back into good memories, childhood memories. Mhm. Yeah, wonderful. It's it's interesting, you know, just the research and stuff that they're finding. But I, I you know, to me, I still think one of the biggest things is just being socially connected um, with people. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. In terms of the disease, yeah. um, now did either of you, or I should say, I should ask um, Eileen this. You know, we brought the Memory Cafe over from the UK. Do you have Memory Cafes over in New Zealand? Um, we don't. We don't have the Memory Cafe. What uh, What we started up at our local branch was what we called a blokes group because we found. Um, when Ray was diagnosed, there was probably about another six or eight people in the area in similar situations. And within that, um, 54 through to about 66 age group. And um, mm-hmm. they used to get together once a fortnight. They would have um, a session in the office and they would do things like reminiscing things or they would... Um, 
do games and things or uh, just discuss the latest rugby game. And then the following fortnight, uh, they would go on a day trip and they would go to the um, Maritime Museum or the, uh, you know, outdoor farm or things like that. And um, that was excellent. Um, everybody used to love it. And and all the men would became really close and the partners became quite close too. So, uh, you know, once a month we'd all get together and go out for a, a, a meal somewhere. So, uh, so that was really good. Well, that's nice. Mary Beth, do you have anything like that that you participate in where you live? Um, no, not really. I, but I would say that, you know, I would characterize him by saying that he was never a particularly social person to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, when you find somebody who's particularly gifted and talented with uh with animals, a lot of times you find that they're not social, and that was that was his case. I see small groups are good and um, one-on-ones are good, but um, that was part of the reason why daycare didn't work. Is just the, the whole social aspect of it was overwhelming because he never was that way when he was well. So. Okay, well, yeah, and I don't think that they, we can expect them to change. It's kind of like. Um, Oh, the basketball coach that uh, just got diagnosed. And I don't know if you saw the video where the son was talking. about, And the doctor said, well, what do you, what do you think of the testing? Because he was sitting there um, in on the testing. And he said, I, I didn't like your testing. He said, I don't think it was fair. And the doctor's like, why? And he's like, you know what, my mom's never been good at math. Anything past 2 plus 2 is questionable for her. You know, she always had to pull in resources. And he said, you didn't test her on relationships. You didn't test her on leadership. And that is still, you know, strong and vibrant within her. That is the core of who my mom is. It's not how many letters or numbers or words she can remember in a sequence. That's not who she is. That's not a valid test for her. And I thought, oh, man, is that one smart kid? You know, to be able to, to see that yeah. and understand that already. And, you know, I, I understand that they have to test for certain areas in the brain, but it really is that true human interconnectiveness um, between one another that they really can't test for. And it would right. be interesting if they could come up with something um, on that mm-hmm. basis because, you know, that's... To me, that's the heart of the matter, and there we could really help redirect people um, in, in interactions with things. So, um, with that, we've got it. We've been yapping here for quite a while. We're going to have to wrap up. So, if people want to um, get a hold of you, Mary Beth, how would they how would they reach out to you? What what format would you would you like them to contact you by? Um, probably best is is email, because I never can tell when I'm going to be able to talk on the phone. Um, okay. So email is good. And okay. they can do, uh, you want my email address? Sure, that would be great, yeah. Sure, it's M as in Mary, B as in boy, mm-hmm. at 
Little Bit Ranch. And there's a dash between each of those words. Sorry, that's a complicated one. But it's L-I-T-T-L-E dash B-I-T dash R-A-N-C-H dot com. Okay, wonderful. And how about you, Eileen? Is there a way for people to reach you? Yes, same same with me. Email's probably best. Um, that's R-A-Y dot A-N-D dot E I L double E N at extra X T R A dot co C O dot N Z. Okay. So the end of that was X T R A dot C O dot um N Z. So we're so used to dot yes. com here, I just wanted to clarify that yeah. one. <laughs> no. Great. Well, wonderful. Well, tomorrow I'm actually doing another show, which is going to be really interesting. That will be 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific Time. And that is going to be with Dr. Doug Warnell, who is a geriatric psychologist. And he wrote the book Wandering Explorers, um, and that's about practical dementia. Doug was supposed to be on the show a week ago, and uh, he got in a car accident, the nerve of him. So we had to reschedule. But he he was okay, so that was good. He called me about 20 minutes afterwards and and apologized there. And so I'm really excited to have uh, Doug on the show tomorrow because he is very much open to fielding questions that people may have um, to see if he can help them. And then on the 12th, um, we're going to have on Abe's Garden, which is just a really cool, brand-new community that um, is going to be built down in Tennessee. And I'm going to have the chairman of the board, Mike Shermling, and um, executive director of Abe's Garden, Andrew Sandler. And that is going to be a facility that will have, I should say, community um, with 48 um, people, units of 12, little um, neighborhoods of 12. And then they are going to have a 24-7 daycare along with a research center. So it's going to be a community like we've never seen here in the U.S. And I'm not sure if there's anything like this abroad either. So it will be interesting to hear uh, what they're doing. And then on the 23rd, we're going to have Laura Beck from the Eden Alternative, which is nationally renowned, and she's going to be talking about creating quality of life for elders and um, their care partners. On the 26th, we're going to have um, Gary Joseph LeBlanc, who is an author of Staying Afloat in the Sea of Forgetfulness. And he is... um, His book is very, very good. So I think it will be some exciting and some some fun shows coming up. So, again, I I just want to thank both Mary Beth and Eileen for spending all this time with us today. And um, I wish you both nothing but the best um, for you and, and your husbands and your families. And, again, I thank you so much for being part of the show and and sharing with us on such an intimate level um, your lives. So with that, we're going to go ahead and close off. Did you have any last words that you wanted to say, either Mary Beth or Eileen? Thanks for the opportunity, Lauren. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity, Laurie. Thanks. Well, great. 
And we will definitely be chatting in the future. So thanks again. And with that, we will wrap up. So everybody have a blessed day as you think ahead to go ahead. Bye now. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.